you know, I had cold open banner <laughs> banter at one point. Um, Was that not the cold open? Are we recording uh, no, I, already? I, I don't think. I mean, I don't think the people need to hear about Dustin clearing out his old Gmails, right? Like that seems like something we can we can probably leave that in the dustbin. It's our new slice of life, uh, art house, uh, mumblecore podcast genre. Yeah. Okay, now hold on, <laughs> because mumblecore cold open is is something. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everybody, welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast. We gather at a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. I have to get this back on the rails. My name is still Dustin. I am Arthur. Uh, and I am Dalton, and please don't at me, uh, especially <laughs> if it's to catfish me. <laughs> oh man if you're tuning into this show for the very first time we need to warn you uh what we're going to do is as we take a look at the film searching uh which is a lot of fun uh when we uh we we do the show we are going to do spoilers and this is a this is kind of a twisty movie so uh spoilers probably matter but we're going to avoid those spoilers for the first part of the show we'll have a synopsis We'll have a uh, quick thumbs up, thumbs down, or a set of reviews, which will be very, very spoiler light. We're going to play a little game uh, that might involve uh, some general spoilers. And then finally, we're going to get down to business and all spoiler bets are off at that point. So that is your warning for that. So um, let's talk searching, shall we? Arthur, do you have a synopsis for us? Hey, Dustin, I do have a synopsis for us. Hey, Told hey. solely through the screen of a computer monitor, searching is a modern mystery. When his 16-year-old daughter goes missing, David Kim goes down a rabbit hole trying to better understand the daughter he only thought he knew. With time ticking away, David works with detectives to find any and all leads on where Margot could be. Um, That is it. That is definitely the movie. And it is got the, that, the, the gimmick, I guess, of it. But I don't feel like it's strongly gimmickly. We'll see what you guys think about it. Of uh, The whole story being told uh, through a computer screen. So let's go ahead and do... Our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. I'm going to shoot to you first, Dalton. What do you want to say about searching? Well, it is kind of a misnomer uh, to, or a misdescript, I guess, to, to say it takes place just on the one screen because it does wisely bounce between a couple of devices. Um, and the film has some good fodder with that, right? We would not jump over from a you know a PCI OS to a to a Mac OS. We jump around to some you know hidden cameras. Uh, the, the film is restrained. We're, you know, we're not jumping around devices a ton, but it does just enough of that to give us, a, you know, clue expansion where it needs to happen. It, it uses uh, those screens to, to kind of further the, the thriller genre it's working in. Right. Uh, it's a good movie. Uh, I, I saw it in theaters and really enjoyed it. Um, so I, I'm glad to have both the experience of watching the computer movie on a giant screen uh, and also having uh, watched it on my computer and prep for the for the show. Uh, I, I do like those two different experiences because I think they both bring something else to the watching of this movie that I, that I think is very fun. Uh, obviously, last week as filler, Arthur and I talked about Unfriended. That movie does, in fact, take place just on the one computer screen, and it's a much worse movie. I'm, I'm not saying staying on one computer is going to be the thing that makes your movie worse, uh, but that one is. Uh, this movie finds real pathos, and I think that was the thing that was lacking uh, last week uh, for, for Unfriended, which uh, Arthur and I... Uh, you know, had quite a quite 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 a bit of quibbles over it. That that movie's just inability to uh, to relate to anybody uh, in the film, and that's really the strength of searching. So we kind of get the speaking of uh, cold opens, uh, we get this the very much uh, up method of uh, setting the groundwork for what's going on with your main character status quo. Right, that's that's the only. 
uh, despite you know the the confines of, of this uh, conceit. Um, really, that that Pixar film is is the first that comes to mind is in a uh, comparison for the sort of economic storytelling we have up front here in Searching, uh, and it does a lot to really lay the stakes and the groundwork of everything to come. Um, John Cho is just so good in this movie. Uh, yes. he, he really does just absolutely crush these these dips and peaks and in intensity as as David goes from concerned to hopeful to distressed to devastated as we you know unravel what's going on with Margot. John Cho is just taking us there every step of the way, both uh, him as an actor and then in the writing of the film using this very clever conceit of uh, deleted and retyped text messages to kind of give us a lot uh, of look into David's interior life. Uh, it's really the potentially the strongest argument uh, for this sort of screen life uh, storytelling. And we'll, we'll talk more about screen life and Timur Bekmanikov later on. Um, but I, I think that kind of, that ability to both show and tell the audience is, is both like a cheeky bit of uh, cheating uh, but also very accurate to how we live our lives digitally, right? And I think that uh, attempts to <clears throat> be true to life uh, within this this kind of movie making uh, it can be mixed bag, probably. But I think m- more often than not, in searching, it, it lands really well. Th- those attempts to pull in what it's actually like to be online uh, into the film. Um, there's also just some fun digital jokes. Uh, the bit with Tumblr's good. Uh, the, the Bieber concert reveal—that's not too spoilery. That's fun. There's just a lot of like very cheeky ways uh, this sort of screen life uh, method is used here in searching. Because it—I I think in a lesser movies like Unfriended, it very much comes across as a gimmick. Um, and I, I think you can say a lot about searching. You know, it's not without its faults, um, and I, I don't want to get too much into those because I don't think I can do that without getting a little bit too spoilery for this early uh, phase of the show. But yeah, you know, it's it's fun, it's good, and it's not just a gimmick. Uh, and, and if there's anything uh, that you want to, if you know, if there's any benchmark for success in a, sort of an unconventional method of making a movie, yeah, it's it's the the conceit or gimmick not eating your film is boom. That's the first hurdle you want to clear. Uh, and, and searching definitely does that. Uh, it's good. I, I really like it. I, you know, I, it's definitely uh, softened. I would say, you know, when I first saw this uh, in theaters, I really did go for it uh, pretty entirely uh, on the rewatch. I, I was a little bit less sucked in. Um, and, and again, we'll talk about uh, red herrings and reveals as we get a little bit more uh, spoilerly later in the show. But I'm very curious to hear what uh, the two of you thought about it. Arthur, I know you'd seen it before. Uh, any any big thoughts on this this revisit? Uh, we'll quit trying to steal the show from Dustin. I yeah. love doing it. Well, also, it makes it, you know, harder uh, to tell that I just kind of ran out of steam on my uh, my uh, my review there. Oh, we could tell. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Everyone knows. I uh, yeah, this is the second time I'd seen it. I, I watched it as well in theaters, and I really went for it as well there. So that question, of course, is can it hold up with that that gimmick as you mentioned? Uh, and I do think it does sort of transcend that gimmick. I think it makes great strides to do that. Um, this is a movie I really enjoy. I, I get a big kick out of this one uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I think just uh, the implementation of that mode of filmmaking that kind of screen capture found footage thing that it's going for you know that's the you know one thing i really think worked about unfriended and this to your point really by branching out 
into a bigger world and really raising the scope of the story, I think it succeeds in a surprising way where I, I think it has so much potential to fail. Uh, so I think it is definitely handed handled uh, throughout. I, I really, really enjoy this movie, you know, and I, I didn't soften on it on the, on the rewatch. Uh, I think I kind of appreciate it maybe a little more. Um, and I say this with all due respect to this movie and, and the shows, but this just feels like rock solid Emmy award style TV procedural. And, and I don't mean that as a knock in any way, but it, it just, you know, the, the way everything kind of unfolds, the tension, uh, I, I think it's just, you know, top notch procedural storytelling at its best. And the way it all plays out, it, it very much feels like an episode of uh, NCIS or CSI or what have you. Uh, with higher emotional stakes, and and that is largely in part to uh, uh, to John Cho, but also to uh, I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but the character, uh, the the actress who plays Mar- Margot uh, as uh, well, Michelle Law. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah she uh, she brings so much to uh, the the bits we get with her. These kind of snippets of her life, uh, these little you know uh, reels um, type videos i can't think not not tiktok what was uh before tiktok and uh oh uh oh God. periscope periscope what, what was the one with the loops oh vine yeah vine, vine. I, jesus I, wow of, yeah. how do we forget about vine r.i.p sorry vine <laughs> but, i mean the the kind of implementation in those moments uh, i think just works very well and she has a great you know pathos to her Mm. Um, and so, uh, I, I think that's really where this movie succeeds is in those character relationships and how well that is, is put on sc- uh, screen. Um, I, I love, uh, I love the kind of, and I mentioned this when we talked about it, but I like that kind of world building of, you know, the, the sidebar of like Facebook messages or text messages mm. that you kind of just see off to the side or these like ads that pop up. Like, I, I like those little moments cause it, it really does flesh it out. Hey, speaking uh, and, of those, Arthur, did you notice there's like little news blurbs that are hinting at a an alien invasion happening in the margins of this movie? Did you oh, catch that? I did not, but that's <laughs> that's wonderful, and that's the kind of stuff. I, I mean, that's what makes it really fun, right? Looking for those little Easter eggs can, it can be a little game in itself, and I appreciate that about it. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of detail in that, uh, and I, I love the score for this movie. Um, I, I think that really helps that opening cold open, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, I think, drives the kind of emotional backbone of the story. That score, I think, is really solid. Um, so, yeah, this this movie is aces to me. I, I really dig it quite a bit and uh, appreciate what it's doing. And uh, I, I haven't got to see Run yet. I've, I mentioned it last week. Uh, Anish and Gotti's uh, follow-up to Searching on Hulu. Uh, and and I, I really do want to see it because I, I look forward to what he brings uh, brings to the table. Yeah, I watched a little bit of a uh, interview with uh, Anusha Ganti and uh, his uh, co-writer uh, Sevahani, and um, I think it was notes from a screenplay. It was one of those. I think it was that uh, YouTube account. But there was a uh, a little bit of a, a conversation with them how they they translated this idea because it started as like a, a forty page just like Word doc. They wrote it more as prose, uh, and they had to really kind of crack how to effectively write the story as a screenplay. Some really interesting stuff going on. Uh, I look forward to seeing Run as well. Yeah, so uh, I'm excited. I dig it. This movie is uh, uh, high praise for me. Dustin, what do you? Th- this is your first time to see Searching, I think. So, uh, what do you think of this one? 
It is indeed my rookie watch, and I liked it. I, I mean, and I think when you nailed it as Emmy Award winning police TV procedural, it is it, a good way to describe this. I mean, it's just, it really it does its job very well. Uh, there may be some flaws, and uh, the number of red herrings may have something to do with that. But I, I, I the more I've thought about it, I, I find them to be satisfying personally. Uh, that they left enough ends dangling to come back to, and and every end does finally get caught back up with, and so it there's a way in which the red herrings resolve some of them, but not all of them, mm. and I think it's really satisfying screenwriting uh, there uh, for that. Uh, and again, I don't think the visual uh, or the uh, the storytelling uh, motif is, is bad. Uh, I, I too also very much enjoy the sort of end screen on uh, on the film, you know, as you're watching it. Uh, popping up with the text messages. I thought a lot of the BBC Sherlock as I watched this and uh, how much I love that uh, technique uh, being deployed in a film like this. And so, uh, yeah, very much enjoyed that. John Cho is, I mean, he's great. You know, I've, I've loved him uh, for a long time. And so he, he's doing his work uh, very, very well. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 have, I have nothing bad to say about it at this point. I, I think it's doing what it's doing and doing it very well and uh is uh it, it gets it gets top marks for what it is i mean is is it the greatest film of all time or anything like that no i'm not saying that but um it, it set out to a task and it accomplished that task uh of putting together a interesting noirish you know uh suspense thriller uh using a different storytelling uh motif uh a newer newish storytelling motif that uh i think it deploys well uh and you can see examples of all kinds of uh, storytelling motifs not working and working. Apparently, uh, that is the case for Unfriended. As you guys have mentioned, we could talk about the world of uh, the found footage film and uh, instances when that works and when it does not work, uh, and so on and so forth. And we probably will as we go forward. But this is an instance of it doing what it's doing well, using its ability, or using its uh, storytelling style in a way that's effective. So I'm a fan. I liked it quite a bit. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts, which are generally pro. We're going to move on to the next part of the show in which we uh, do this little mental exercise called Expanding the Syllabus. Arthur, can you tell the dear listener what that's all about? Yeah, I can. Um, you keep throwing this to me, and uh, one of these days I'm going to polish it up, but uh, here we are. So uh, <laughs> this segment, uh, Expanding the Syllabus, is going to see us uh, putting together our college or class syllabus based around this film, and we will select... Uh, uh, texts and movies to uh, go along with it to uh, highlight our thesis and uh, maybe torture some kids for like 16 weeks. I don't know. But uh, that's what we're going to be doing here. It's a little fun little challenge to uh, uh, broaden the uh, the spectrum of this uh, film and, and what goes with it. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you very much for that, Arthur. Well, what is your syllabus? What do you have ready for us today? Uh, yeah, I was really trying to think about this, and I think you know the obvious thing is is that found footage thing. But uh, I, I was really thinking a lot about social media and true crime. Um, yeah, and, and I started looking at this. I'm not entirely sure how I want to develop it, um, but I was thinking a lot about how, with the recent resurgence of true crime, uh, especially since uh, you know serial, my favorite murder, and then just all of the Netflix documentaries. I think that coupled with social media's ability to amplify these groups that like to 
you know, armchair detective cold cases, right? Uh, that that idea coming together, uh, and we're kind of seeing this play out a little bit in the movie, uh, in, in some ways, almost kind of like a fantasy for some people who who would you know I think love to kind of be in the core of a mystery like this. Um, and, and so I was thinking about like online cold case groups and kind of discussing that trend, uh, really discussing, I think, you know, serial make them up, but I, I really think about my favorite murder in, in a way that I think it normalized conversations for a lot of people to talk about true crime without any sort of hesitancy or stigma or, or taboo surrounding it. I, I think it allowed it to be a little more commonplace and then you know at the water cooler at work or or on social media and really i think paved a way in a different manner for all of those you know netflix uh documentaries and hulu documentaries that that kind of came in its wake uh, i think of making a murderer and you know everything that's followed since the the ted bundy one uh the kind of a couple of the notable ones but there's so many of these every year now uh these true crime documentaries it's such a hot media uh content uh factory uh, and you know there's a lot of you know ethical probably questions to be raised there but i think it's really interesting and so uh one of the places i'd go here is jillian flynn's the dark places the the book not the movie um because it has some of this plotting in it right uh, the, the main character was the victim of some uh witnessing some killings when she was a, a child and she grew up uh, and there are some more killings and she kind of becomes wrapped up in the mystery. But, uh, a part of that is this cold case group that followed the case as she was a kid and have all these theories. And so I think that's kind of an interesting place because it, it really, you know, that book comes out, I think really kind of before this resurgence of true crime. Uh, and there, I want to talk about my favorite murder, of course, uh, and then true crime podcasting in general, and really look at how those, those interact with our social media and the conversations we're having on social media and the openness and the willingness to discuss that. And then I think just for some fun, uh, really has no bearing on anything, uh, but we're going to watch, uh, the 2018 Halloween, which, uh, is, you know, has an inciting incident involving a true crime podcast, which is, uh, just kind of a hoot. Uh, Interesting. so, uh, I think that's where I'd go. I, I, I want to kind of flesh this out a little more, but that's the kind of direction I was going with it. And I don't know necessarily that that, I mean, maybe in a documentary, but that really feels more like a sociology type class. And so I don't know if I would be cut out for that, but I, I think there's uh, interesting bones there at least to, to discuss. Of the uh, Netflix documentaries that you mentioned, have you happened to have seen Don't F with Cats? I have heard of it, but I'm kind of hesitant to watch. It, it, I think it's very good, but well, social media it itself as Facebook as a platform is like an investigatory tool gotcha. in okay. that particular documentary. And so as I was thinking about your syllabus, it, it, it just seemed like something to be really applicable. Oh, yeah, certainly then. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up, Dustin, because that is kind of the I have I've seen bits and pieces of it. That is sort of the crux of that whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Is uh, it is about you know it's it's a crime that's not really going heavily investigated, but uh, you know it's a, it takes a bunch of now, armchair sleuths to uh, to get the ball rolling on it. Do you guys find yourselves when you listen to a true crime podcast or read a true crime book? And I, I, I read, uh, I don't know, half a dozen true crime books a year, probably. Um, do you find yourselves thinking, man, I'd like to find one of these things investigate, like sort of like I'll be alone in the dark? No, and, absolutely not. I like, know it would break me. Yeah. 
no part of me is like not I even find, a little bit like start looking into an unsolved murder and get on the a and e crime boards or whatever and see if I can't figure it out like i think I think about being armchair Batman all the time. I would be unemployed inside of a month. There's, <laughs> it, would, it, it would consume me. Uh, are you kidding me? My office would be covered with sticky, uh, sticky notes and, uh, and string. Red yarn, uh, yeah. Right away. <laughs> absolutely. No, I, I, absolutely not. I, I, I'm glad, Arthur, you mentioned kind of the ethical considerations, though, because that is, uh, Dustin, where I thought you were going with that question it is something I find myself chewing on anytime I'm, I'm dealing with a uh, uh, consuming any, any sort of true crime media is the uh, the ethics of it. What both me consuming it and also the ethics under which it was produced, right? Whether it's yeah. uh, you know a document, I feel I feel like the documentaries are the most invasive potentially, right? Because those are the the most likely to interview uh, people whose lives were directly touched by a crime. Yeah, uh, and I was thinking of a there's a podcast I listen to and I can't think of what it is, and I really don't want to give it the, the time of day, honestly. Uh, because it started to feel so manipulative and mm-hmm. like it was taking advantage of of the the victim's death in a in a really gross way, yeah. Just to get more listeners, just to try to get more subscribers, and the the host was claiming he was really pushing for justice, but he was very antagonistic towards any sorts of fan critique that that kind of challenged that. Uh, and so I, I think it is becoming kind of a sticky, weird situation. You know, I almost said true crime fans earlier, uh, and, and fans is such a weird word, you know, to use in conjunction mm. with true crime, mm. um, at, at least nonfiction true crime. Uh, so it's it's that weird, weird line, you know. So I, I think there is a lot of interesting ethical consequences that should be discussed. And, well, and I'm not the person really... to have that conversation, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you got to be really careful not to do spend so much time glorifying the killer, especially if it's like in the serial yes. killer kind of mold. Mm. You know, yeah. ever since Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal Lecter, there's been ways in which, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or, or Richard Ramirez or whoever has been glorified in some senses uh, as well. Uh, go ahead. I was thinking, sorry, uh, just on that note, I was there was a discussion, a, a thread I saw today. They were talking about Twin Peaks. And how they mentioned that in all the time and in all the shows since Twin Peaks that have lifted that idea of, you know, the dead girl in a town uh, premise, uh, none of them have explored what Twin Peaks was doing because Twin Peaks is all about who was Laura, right? Right. It wasn't about who the killer was. It was about who was this woman and what impact did she have in the city and how is the community sharing and mourning around that that loss? Uh, and and it you know the kind of thesis where is that none of the shows since that have had that similar topic have have tapped into that they all tap into the mystery and not the the victim of it and the, the, right. the tragedy of it mm-hmm. and I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I think AMC's the the killing, which is based on a, a Scandinavian yeah. drama, it tried that and you know it, it kind of lost its way pretty. Uh, pretty early in that show's run, but you know, I, I th- there was definitely an attempt to, to do that. But you're right; that's that is really the shortcoming of of so many of these. I, I was just going to call them dead girl shows, and I actually think there's a sketch show that maybe it was Amy Schumer. Um, somebody's got a sketch about this. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, because it, it is such rife rife for uh, critique. Because as soon as you really start to think about it for longer than a second, you do have to consider the ethics of this sort of stuff. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, I, which I, I think just... I'm going to do. Yeah, before I go to you, I, I will throw out one recommendation. Uh, the recent Netflix series on Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, does spend mm-hmm. a lot of time with the families and uh, mm-hmm. does a lot of interviews that are not exploitative. 
and it really does become like these are the lives destroyed by this person. It's good to hear that. Yeah, and I yeah because we I was pleasantly surprised. Dustin, I'm so glad you brought up the venerating of those idiots because all that does is uh well. Forgive bad police work, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, right? Like, a lot of these people are not geniuses. They just weren't looking for them very hard. Right, or, pro- well, I mean, you know, and sometimes it's, you know, bureaucracies are hard. and Sure, you know, it, and, it, and I shouldn't say bad police work, right? Incompetency of bureaucracy, right? It's not mm-hmm. necessarily like any one bad per- one, any one person's failing, uh, but it is uh, to glorify uh, murderers is just uh, making excuses for systems that could probably use an overhaul. Right, That's what I mean for to sure. say, I guess. Well, let's go ahead and shoot on over to you, Dalton. Uh, what do you mm. want to say in terms of your syllabus, buddy? Well, as, as Arthur kind of touched on, I do want to look at um, the, the, the sort of voyeurism uh, of this film and of social media and of really movies in general. The classes through a monitor darkly. Um, movies, <laughs> voyeurism, and the digital self. Uh, I really thought about splitting this class up into like a, an analog surveillance and a digital surveillance section, uh, but I don't. I don't think we need. It. I think the more interesting work here uh, is is looking at uh, these digital realities, what they mean for us uh, in meat space, how those two things intersect. Um, I can't believe I just said meat space unironically. Good God. Um, but, but anyway, uh, I, I really think that's where the most interesting stuff is. Um, yeah, we might do some groundwork, though, uh, for, for kind of the analog era. You know, the, the, the heavy hitters of sort of the voyeurist genre. Um, so Rear Window, Truman Show, Lives of Others, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, right? Some of these kind of... Mm-hmm big key moments in in movies that are, are directly addressing this topic. Uh, we might just watch clips, you know, we might read about them. I, I don't think we can focus on them too much. Um, I think the only sort of analog surveillance film we might look at is A Scanner Darkly, um, not just because we've uh, obviously referenced the title of the novel and movie uh, in the name of the class, uh, but I also think it functions really well as a, as a transitional point. Excuse me, I needed a uh, drink of water there. Uh, it functions well as a transitional point, both like in terms of uh, digital and analog surveillance, right? Because that movie uh, deals with uh, sort of a, a near future timeline that is still pretty uh, keyed in on, you know, hardwired surveillance, right? Bugs in people's phones, that sort of stuff, uh, even though there is some, some sort of a gestures made towards internet surveillance because it's a movie that comes out in 2004. Uh, and again, that transition point uh, in the mid aughts also kind of lets us talk about this shift from, you know, analog film, you know, film stock movies to digital movies, which is the, the, the universe where movies like searching become possible. It is that shift to digital filmmaking that allows us to start thinking about making movies that take place inside of computer screens. Uh, and also these other movies we're going to be, uh, movies and shows we're going to be looking at aren't really focused on state surveillance. It's more the surveillance we submit to ourselves and and we conduct on the people around us ourselves, right? But I, I do want to look at A Scanner Darkly because that's, uh, it does a lot of that, right? It's both looking at state sur- section surveillance uh, and how that just intersects with kind of civilian surveillance. Um, but obviously we'll be looking at searching. Uh, we'll be looking at last week's uh, bonus sode, Unfriended. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, last year's Spree with Joe Curie uh, and Sashir Zameda. Uh, we'll look at Ingrid Goes West uh, with mm. 
uh, Elizabeth Olsen um, and Aubrey Plaza. Uh, and then we'll look at the uh, episodes of Black Mirror, 500 Million Merits, and Nosedive. Um, you're noticing pattern here if you've seen all of these, and that is they're, they're all about social media, mm-hmm. either in very big, broad, explicit ways, uh, or in just sort of uh, the ways in which they function, right? Searching is not really about social media, but it has to engage with it to kind of talk about what it is about, which is about the way we relate to one another in the modern world and how we we learn about each other, especially in searching's case when we've grown apart from someone, whether it's a you know a friend or a member of our own family. This is often how we catch up with each other and the ways in which we present ourselves uh, online say a lot about who we are and who we how we want to be perceived, right? Uh, um, I think Spree is the film that really gets at what you were just talking about, Arthur, this this question of at what point are we trying to shine light on the unseen and at what point are we reveling uh, in violence uh, and uh, being frankly far too uh, bloodlusty as a society? Um, Spree's good. I, I like it. I think it's interesting. I think it tries to engage with those ideas. And I think it... Uh, as a film, does a really good job of trying to blend both the the screen capture way of making movies uh, and sort of more conventional found footage. I think it threads that needle really, really well. Uh, and so this class might honestly end up being as much uh, could could just as easily be a film course as it could be a sociology course or you know anything else. There, there's a lot of directions you could go uh, with a class like this, both talking about. Um, the evolution of surveillance uh, in uh, you know the late tw- or early 21st century, or uh, the evolution of voyeurism as a theme within storytelling. Um, but again, I think Spree, from like just a filmmaking standpoint, takes what Searching does really well in terms of building mystery and leaving breadcrumbs, and kind of weaves that in with something like, um, oh, what's that superhero movie, Arthur? Chronicle. Yeah, Chronicle, which which does some kind of interesting it finds interesting ways to stay in the found footage format uh, chronicles good yeah yeah it's it's solid as far as trying to find ways to keep found footage visually interesting Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think spree uh has some pretty clever conceits at the top of the movie that allows it to be really visually interesting uh still use a lot of screen capture stuff and kind of intercut that with things shot inside of the car because it is uh sort of a movie presented as uh as YouTube, uh, if, if that makes sense. Uh, for, for those of you listening, either my co-hosts or listeners who aren't aware of it, uh, Joe Keery goes on a rampage. Uh, he's trying to go viral and d- does it by doing rideshare murders. Uh, it's, oh, no. Yeah, it's a very interesting movie, and he's playing. A, it, it's a, it's a cute, fluffy-haired kid. Uh, what's his name from uh, Stranger Things? I, I don't know the character's name, but it's the guy Steve? with the big hair. Steve, yeah, it's the guy with the big hair, but now he uh, he's a murderer in a movie, so he has a... Uh, bad limp stringy greasy hair <laughs> it, it is very funny to see him uh do a different kind of uh charisma which is in this case like very forced uh clout chasey uh influencer charisma it's it's a weird performance uh i think i'm focusing in on this movie because i think it's a really good junction for for all of these different themes uh ingrid goes west you know more of a conventional film that uses that screen capture stuff uh sort of in the margins to advance the story uh, and then 500 million merits and nosedive, uh, kind of in that Ingrid Goes West model, mostly being conventionally told screen stories, uh, but trying to bring in the digital stuff um, when it needs to happen. Uh, so again, I, I think with a class like this, you could look at those different kind of filmmaking conventions um, and or uh, look at 
the different sorts of voyeurism going on in these stories, right? Searching, we have a father trying to find his daughter. And on the margins of that story, we have people gawking at this man uh, trying to uh, solve a crisis uh, in, in his life. And unfriended, you have people gawking at someone in their lives and being gawked back being gawked at by the audience uh, for their bad behavior. Spree is kind of interrogating all those things. Uh, and then Ingrid Goes West gets into um, sort of the dangers of uh, uh, allowing ourselves to be t- highly surveilled 24-7, right? It's And I think that that movie does a good job of not moralizing too much about social media, although it's been a couple of years now since I've seen it. Uh, but I think that's a really interesting thing to do with all of these films and stories is, is to look at which of them are sort of moralizing about, oh gosh, uh, wasn't it nice when we all looked at each other's faces and carried around newspapers um, versus, no, there's something to be said about our, our modern digital connections being a, a force for good in the world. But yes, there is something uh, awful and rotten at the core of this. And right, I think you can in- interrogate both of those ideas uh, without you know being too... Uh, uh, moralizy about technology in general. Uh, so anyway, that's the class. It, it could be, uh, as with, I, I feel where you're coming from on this, Arthur. Uh, this movie is kind of expansive in surprising ways that make it hard to focus in on what you want to talk about. Uh, yeah. I think uh, focusing on stories explicitly about the digital world uh, kind of allow us to key in on that, that very specific kind of voyeurism uh, that is in many ways um, opted into. Uh, Dustin, what do you want to talk about uh, with this movie? What what kind of class would you use uh, to uh, searching? I would use it in a module for a class I uh, probably will never teach <laughs> in the realm of film studies, uh, and that is screenwriting itself. Uh, this is something I have very little to do with the creative process. You know, in uh, filmmaking, I, I I do analysis. Um, I am one who dissects. I am one who kills. I do not bring things to life. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so this is not my want, but I, I do think the movie's really, really well written, and it's really, really well written, written as a mystery and as a twist, and uh, using gimmicks to get there. And so I think I would use uh, this as a module for examples of talking about how twist and mystery stories are written, uh, and to use this as one of the model films alongside a couple of others i'd probably begin with like a heavy hitter as you mentioned the conversation not the con you didn't mention the conversation you mentioned uh, lives of others which is basically uh, the i same did movie. but yeah, yeah that's definitely one uh, heavy hitter in sort of that uh voyeurism subgenre in, in, in the world of the twist the the, the first and well not first but one of the major heavy hitters there is obviously alfred hitchcock's psycho which both has the promotional gimmick uh mm. you can't you know mm. uh you can't come in after the movie starts uh, when uh, the movie was uh, being released in theaters in 1960. And then, of course, the big reveals, you know, the early on twist of killing off Janet Lee, and then the later reveal of who the killer is. And I guess I'll avoid the spoiler for now uh, on a movie from 1960, but whatever. The movie's, what, 60 years old at this point? Um, yeah. <clears throat> yikes, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's a movie to begin with. Um, I think... Uh, he who must not be names uh, seven is a movie also that we have to do. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> that's just for you doll. That's an old throwback joke, dear listener from back in the day when we had a David Fincher rule. Uh, on well, this is what happens when you uh, start <clears throat> talking about movies in your early twenties, which I don't think anybody should do. 
<laughs> but uh, I think seven is a good uh, procedural, and it, it is a surprising uh, way in which some uh, details are revealed at the end of that film. Uh, one of the greatest twists uh, personally experienced by me ever, and I think I've brought it up several times on the show over the years, is the Richard Gere film uh, Primal Fear. Ooh, good uh, twist, yeah. yeah. And uh, again, a great way of burying the lead without just utterly burying it and getting us to where we need to be. Uh, and, and again, investigation this time through the lives of an attorney. And then I think you have to include a Shyamalan film since he is so known as this kind of master of the twist. And the closest thing I can think of the sort of mystery investigation in his uh, film log, it, I, 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 I'm really not married to this choice. I could do any Shyamalan movie probably for this, but I think I lend myself more towards the village than anything else because there is kind of a, a thing going on hmm. uh, that they're trying to figure out. Uh, and, and so uh, that's probably the selection I would make, but I could probably be pretty easily persuaded to use Signs or The Sixth Sense or a number of other films uh, for that um, as well. Um, I also thought about the movie The Others in the same way as uh, Shyamalan, but I think once you've got the Shyamalan, you've kind of got the same kind of feel as what you're going to get with a movie like The Others as well. But to use those movies as a model for investigation of how, uh, again, these, these films themselves are written in terms of dialogue, how they're written in terms of screenplay specifically, and how they use their various marketing and storytelling techniques in order to hide and show where the audience is going to take them along on that ride and let that twist be a last twist like a roller coaster ride. That that really, uh, this kind of uh, storytelling mode is uh, one of the more ride-like types and uh, is a good metaphor for what they do. And uh, how to take an audience on a good ride, I think, uh, is an important technique uh, for a screenwriter to at least be familiar with, if not to be a master thereof. And so that's what I would do with that as a class. So um, there you go, dear listener. Uh, those are our thoughts. I guess your syllabus just got a little longer. I believe now it's time for us to get down to business. Uh, that's right, dear listener. And that business is, as always, analysis. Um, as Dalton mentioned a little while ago, this movie is quite expansive in sort of the territory that it covers in various ways. And uh, I... I, I'm not certain what I want to do. I, I, let's just talk about the gimmick and gimmick filmmaking in general. I, think. I would love to, Dustin, um, because now we get to talk about uh, uh, Russian producer extraordinaire Timur Bekmanetov, uh, who's produced truly like a bafflingly large number of movies at this point, um, but uh, did those uh, Daywatch movies um, that ended up kind of being crossover hits. Uh, and lately has been uh, the big producer of all of these, what he calls screen life movies, both this film, uh, both of the unfriended films, uh, a couple of others. Uh, but yeah, I, it's, uh, it's weird that this niche has sort of been carved out. Um, and it, I guess it's a smart uh, move as far as, you know, the business of movie making goes to say, all right, well, this gimmick's taking off. I might as well become the producer du jour uh, of this type of movie. Um, but I, I agree, it's it's very easy for any type of quote-unquote gimmick film uh, to fall uh, prey to just being all gimmick, no movie. Um, and I think some of these 
some films do that in this genre. It's it's hard to keep things visually entertaining at, at a certain point when everything's on a screen. Would would you guys agree? Like, is that to me that's the biggest shortcoming of searching and, and really all of these uh, unfriended, especially, uh, but re- really most of these these screen locked movies do limit you to some extent. I, I think you're right. I think uh, searching uses its limitations, though. I agree. It, it, it finds good, it, clever workarounds, but I, I still think there is some, some staticness, I guess. I, I guess I would think, um, like, some of the lesser, quote-unquote, found footage movies might be a better example there, like True. REC or some of these others. You know, I mean, I, I really do like the initial paranormal activity, that sort of second wave of uh, the found footage film. Yeah. Uh and I, I find it to work really well because the lockedness of the camera have you, as you've left it somewhere in those cases. So these are not handheld cell phone cameras in, uh, in this case. Uh, when that happens, when they use that, um, it, it, it creates another kind of tension in the filmmaking. And uh, I find that to be useful. Um, but those movies also rely really heavily on uh, the promotional gimmick of is it real or is it not, right? I'm thinking especially Blair Witch and the initial paranormal activity, you know, lacking uh, credits and, uh, you know, sort of being like, and we, you know, in honor of the families of, of this, these two actors, right? Um, whatever that little um, yeah, 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 I remember block of text is at the beginning of it is. And so it, it, it is kind of a different beast, I think. And, and so you've got two different things to deal with is there's the, there's the sort of hyper realism that they both achieve mm. because this is my real life looks like that screen that John chose looking into his whole day and his whole totally. Life. Yeah. And yeah so, and I, I, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, no, well, no, no I, please. It, and, and so it, it achieves that, um, that, that, that sense of a surrogate surrogacy. That, I, that this guy is me. I mean, I got to tell you how seen I felt just having a kid and getting a Windows XP computer locked up and uh, eventually getting a <laughs> user. Like, I did that stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, ah, that was, it, 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 I felt very seen in that. And then the transition to the various kinds of technology, you know, as they eventually end up in MacBooks uh, by the end. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, really does achieve strong senses of realism. Uh, the, the realism uh, with handheld photography, like in a Blair Witch Project, or of uh, just the digital photography sort, sort of sitting out, and the really um, realistic, stylistic performances of the actors in Paranormal Activity sort of achieve that. But it, it really does, the style does a lot for that, it seems to me, in this case. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I, I think so. Uh, there's definitely it's it's interesting the way, as you wisely pointed out, there is a, a a big difference between kind of conventional found footage movies and these sort of screen capture movies, uh, especially in that there has never been any pretense towards uh, realism with with these, right? Like the the conceit is so. <laughs> The conceit is so obviously a construct that you couldn't, pro- you probably couldn't get away with pretending it was real. Uh, and why would you want to, honestly? Right. Because that that attempt at a marketing ploy has been done so many times already. Uh, but but it's weird. I, I am kind of struck by the ways in which these screen captures are both more and less real. Like as you said, this is what 
a lot of our lives look like. I would say probably most of our lives at this point. Everybody is, yeah. uh, the vast majority of the planet is online in some way, which is kind of baffling to think about. Well, uh, but especially in the year 2020 when everything sure. moved online, you know, I think that really makes us a little timelier than it probably intended to be. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, I it definitely the, uh, changed context for me watching this. Um, and I kind of felt the same way about Spree catching up with that and, and prep for this episode, just thinking, wow, man, I, I don't know that they uh, had any idea uh, <laughs> when they were making this movie in 2019, how it would feel in 2020. Um, it, it is, it's very interesting, this, this mode of filmmaking, the ways in which it is both more and less real than, you know, a, the, the realness you get out of a found footage movie or the attempt at realness. Uh, is this the cinema genie at work again, Dustin? Is this what we have going on here? Uh, I don't know. I mean, we're we're talking about Jean Cho at that point. We're talking about actors and personas when we get to the cinema, um, the photo gene, uh thing Thank going. Um, so I, I don't I don't know that it's that, but I do think it feels like the movie I could be in if I the movie if, that could happen to your life. Yeah, the, yeah. I yeah if, if I found myself suddenly in a set of circumstances, I would be making those same kind of searches. And if there was a camera on at all times, which is con- totally conceivable. As I did that, right, and if someone just sort of had an ongoing screen capture of what was happening on the screens of my various phones and and devices, this would be a version of some movie I could live through. And I and I think that identify that vicariousness uh, there is a, a strong uh, connective selling point for a film like this. Well, that's kind of why I invoked the elusive concept of the photo genet that we've uh, been talking about a lot this this past uh, uh, year, or I guess the three months into this year. Uh, d- can you kind of give us a quick recap on that concept, Dustin? Because I do think that there is something interesting going on in the uh, the the movie movies that are screens within screens, I guess. Right, and I, I, I'm, I'm again the photo genet has never been one of those things I've had a strong understanding of, but as I recall. And we have been sort of bringing it up and over and over again. It is this uh, constructed imaginary of the actor or actress on screen, right? And um, how that becomes the reality of who they are and the way in which that intermixes with uh, the the persona uh, of a particular actor or actress and their real life, uh, life, whatever that may be, and their on-screen lives and how those uh, different um, projections sort of interpenetrate one another into a third thing, you know, separate from the character or the actor or actress in question. Yeah, I feel like uh, it, maybe I am uh, misremembering or uh, I, I was misunderstanding uh, when you were trying to uh, bring this concept up several months, uh, a couple months ago now, I should say. Um, but I, I do, I, I, the thing that I've kind of been hung up on uh, when we've talked about this concept is this idea that uh, filmmaking is doing a weird thing by uh, trying to tell a story that is uh, placing the audience in the play in the uh, in the position of watcher in the position of voyeur. Um, so again, while, while it seems like uh, I might have misunderstood the concept when we first started talking about it, seeing as you've just now kind of articulated really well that it is more about um, actors versus characters versus how the viewing public perceives those two things. Um, I, I am really struck by the weird thing that happens when you make a movie be about the mundane aspects of everyday life, especially in this case, specifically computers. It's There is a weird thing taking place that is 
simultaneously making the mundane more fantastical and making the fantastical thing that is movies more mundane. Does that does that hold water? Uh, it does. It does because it does feel like anybody could do it a little bit, mm. and that's sort of the same thing that found footage does. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying there. Although they didn't do screen capture. Uh, this was all, you know, animated for the movie, which it definitely seemed like the smart move, right? I, it would probably be a logistical nightmare to actually try and um, screen grab this. Yeah, screen like, yeah, have John Cho actually mouse over and type, <laughs> God, what a, what a nightmare of a production that would be. Uh, but but anyway, yeah, again, I don't mean that as a, a backhanded compliment towards these screen capture uh, screen life movies. Um even though I, I have stated, I do, I think as a whole, I've, I've watched a lot of them the last two weeks. I think they're kind of visually bland. Uh, and I don't know that there's a good workaround for that. I really don't. Again, this movie uh, figures out a way to get three cameras in the same room just so John Cho can do something other than stand in one spot for at least one scene of the movie. <laughs> Which, again, what are you going to do? You have to find some way to keep the film visually entertaining at a certain point. Um, but again, that that kind of limitation of this format aside, I think there is something kind of spooky is not the right word, but there is something weird happening, a sort of surreal third thing happening when you're yeah. making a movie about computer screens. Let me read part of this photogene uh, definition that I found that I believe is what I read before. It's from uh, Ian Atkin uh, from his European Film Theory and Criticism book. Um, he says this, photogene occurs at the meeting of the profilmic, that's which is in front of the camera, and the mechanical, and the filmmaker. It is above all a defamiliarization of the spectator with what appears on screen. It is a property that cannot be found in reality, in quotes, itself. A camera that is simply switched on does not record it, and a filmmaker cannot simply point it out. As Aiken again summarizes, fully realized photogene could only be manifest when his latent power was employed to express the vision of the filmmaker, and so the inherent poetry of cinema could be harnessed and developed in the revelatory manner of the auteur. So it is yeah. the thing that happens somewhere between there's somebody standing in front of this camera, there's a camera, and somebody behind the camera operating the camera, and a fourth conjunction occurs that is neither real nor entirely fiction. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I'm almost a hundred percent sure that that is the the bit you read uh, back on our uh, Passion of Joan of Arc episode, which I think oh, is the, probably the first so. episode. Yeah, I think yeah. that was the first episode we started talking about this concept. When we first brought it up, I pooed it as you know a, a little bit too up mo- mo- the, the movie's butt, right? Like I, I just movies in general, not mm-hmm. that movie, um, because I think that that is the danger with any art or culture criticism or analysis is y- you can get a little bit. Uh, too navel gazy uh, about the importance of talking about movies and TV shows at a certain point. But the more I've thought about it, <laughs> that was kind of my initial gut reaction. But the more I've thought about it, the more I keep getting annoyed by how this, this concept is stuck in my brain, because I think there is something there, even if uh man, you didn't need to use that many $6 words there. Uh, right. Uh, but he's, he's making a very good point. I, I think the, the expansiveness of the language d- does serve to kind of try to articulate this thing that is, as he's you know kind of writing it is inarticulable right yeah there is a weird fourth thing happening well uh, again it, john cho is an actor famous yes. for star trek famous for uh the movie columbus which i loved uh, famous for being a a movie pothead and now he is a, there a movie is. a movie dad yelling yeah. at his pothead brother yeah right like john cho has had a, a kind of a very weird and expansive career at this yeah. point he's been working for what 15 20 years 
And yet, watching this film, I I, I have all these sort of uh, fellow father-like feelings towards him now. Mm, Yeah. I mean, you guys are, I think, almost exactly the same age. Yeah, I think so. And and, and his performance itself, though, I I just so strongly identify with him, right? And so that that is something of that uh, mystical photogenic process, I think, at work there. Uh, Arthur, was that uh, there it is? Were you waiting for Harold and Kumar to come up on this episode? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the obvious. <laughs> that's the obvious tie-in. Also, uh, John Cho has eight years on her on Pops. So, uh, eight years. Wow, John Cho looks great. Good job, dude. Man, John yeah, Cho well is forty-eight years old. Are you yes, kidding me? Seventy-two. Something right. Wow. Yep. Man, Hollywood. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's it's the it's the uh, it's the potion you, everyone needs. Uh, speaking of people who are aging great, we haven't talked about Deborah Messing at all. Uh, we should talk about her now that we can talk about spoilers, probably. Uh, oh, right. We should. And we should probably um, talk about a movie called We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is mm-hmm. the sympathetic version of her story. Sure. I don't know, man. The, the fact mean, that she is a cop covering. Yeah. I mean, I, the fact that she is a cop, though, covering up the crimes of her son, especially, you know, between me watching this movie and us talking about it, uh, Atlanta happened. And right. I don't know, man, that really kind of recontextualized this movie in ways I didn't expect. Uh, just because I'm thinking about mm. uh, cops making excuses for white dudes hurting uh, Asian American women and girls. Uh, yeah. And, and so this movie, yeah, right. I know. I, I'm glad I watched the the movie kind of early and prep for this, but it yeah. really has like that happening has really made this movie kind of sit with me a little bit harder because I think the film does get at something there, right? It does get at the ways in which some people can kind of cavalierly go missing uh, and nobody gives a shit. And it, it, the only people who bother to try and find out what happened are people who are directly impacted uh, by the bad thing that happened. Uh, we you cannot always count on systems to help you, uh, especially when those systems uh, tend to favor certain people. Right, and again, her power and her position are what enable that, and really, I mean, inspire even the thought of it. And uh, again, the, the the sheer callousness of her choices, right? Um, and I mean, I and I'm very satisfied by the ending ending of the movie. Sure, um, because yeah, I mean, and, very there for this movie being allowed to have a happy ending. Yes. Um, and uh, so I, I really, really like that. But it also, it, it, it finds a way to magnify her monstrosity and give us a happy ending, which I think is really, really well written uh, to do. I go back and forth um, on the – Dustin, did you figure out that she was the, the villain of the piece before it was revealed? I did not. That's interesting. Okay, I was just curious since you're the first time watcher. I honestly couldn't tell you if I figured it out when I saw this in theaters. I think I might have. It's not yeah, important, I, though. Yeah, I can't remember either. I was I was trying to remember if I did or not, and I, I can't remember. Yeah, I, I couldn't for the life of me tell you, but man, is it does it feel obvious from the word go. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe, it, of course... Having seen you, it, yeah. Yeah, you can't unknow that. But there are shades of Deborah Messing's performance that are just like deeply sinister <laughs> in, a, in a way that really struck me. Uh, and I, again, I, I found distracting on the rewatch. Uh, but, you know, maybe that's just a good performance. I don't know. Well, I, I think when be... the uh, brother Red Herring plays out, one thing that the movie had done is mm. it set me up for this is going to be a Red Herring. Right? Yeah. You know? It just, it, it does. And you're right it, to mention like, that is such textbook screenwriting, but it, it in a good way. Yeah, it, they do introduce their red herrings very early. 
uh, and kind of nonchalantly in ways that are, mm-hmm. I think are pretty effective. You know, we talk sometimes about, uh, I, I remember when we discussed, um, oh, oh goodness, what's the, uh, the Mini Cooper th- uh, stealing? Oh, Italian job. Yeah, when Italian we talked job. about Italian job, we talked about how it was, it was generic in the worst ways. But I think this is a movie that makes great use of those genre conventions in a way that it is, it does feel generic, but it also feels like it's operating outside of that, that convention as well in a, in a way that plays to its strengths. Well, the filmmakers know that, uh, in that interview, I, I name checked earlier in the show, yeah. uh, Shiganti and, and, and Ohari, and they do talk about how, like, this is a very straightforward, pretty conventional story. We just had to look at, all right, well, if this is the structure of a detective movie or a thriller, how do we take the, you know, how do we take the knocking on door sequence and digitize it? How do we take this sequence, yada yada, and so on and so forth? Uh, so it's it was very cool to to see them kind of lay that process out, being uh, you know very clear that they know that they've kind of made a, a very genre tastic tropey movie, uh, but then kind of figuring out the ways to I- integrate that sort of story structure uh, into this conceit. I, I, again, it does speak to. Uh, the, the, the very clever work being done here. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, another thing I was thinking about was the multiplicity of lives. Um, this film is sort of about that and specifically the ways in which uh, digitization of social media and other mm-hmm. media has sort of made that possible. Um, you know, it, forever in the mystery film, um, the idea of the double life has been a thing that exists. Yeah. Right. Um, but in this particular context, I, I, I think double lives are more than just for, you know, serial killers or whatever. Now, um, that there's a way in which, yeah. you know, the half life is lived by lots of people. Yeah. And you can, uh, yeah, I, I, you can, you know, be very introverted and reclusive in, in person and, and have zero, you know, or, or few friends in person, but you could thrive on, you know, message boards and reddit and and find those similar groups and and kind of have a whole other you know online life to your point yeah Yeah, this is one of the main character arcs of uh one of the like lead characters on euphoria right this is kind of the conceit of eighth grade this i mean we're Mm -hmm. telling more and more stories about this every day uh a a thing that was very novel in 1999 when it was a a scene with keanu reeves being chewed out by his boss and then you know uh, agent smith right (laughs) 21 or some odd years ago that was a pretty novel idea, but you're absolutely right. More and more, everyone is doing some version of this, especially uh, as Arthur pointed out uh, in the the year that was mostly behind screens. Uh, God bless everybody who uh, couldn't live uh, that year mostly behind screens um, or, or, or were not able to. But uh, again, yeah, this is becoming like, it's just the way everyone lives their lives, which is a big part of why I wanted to bring up um, those Black Mirror episodes, 500 Million Merits and Nosedive. Something very bad happens when we don't allow people uh, the the right to have that kind of life compartmentalization. I think there's, there's good and ills both, I guess I I should clarify. Yeah. Well, and I think it further complicates the idea of parental responsibility in an interesting way. You know, I mean, one of the things that people always say when anything bad happens at all with any kind of child, you know, where were the parents, right? We had some, we had a view of that with uh, some of the TV reporting uh, in this film and, you know, do you know who your kids are and who their friends are and that kind of stuff? And that, that, again, that, that, that's always a challenge uh, to know who those things, who those people are and what that stuff is all about. And the film does something I think is interesting is that it both 
encourages uh, greater involvement and investment on the term of, on on the on the part of the parents, but also gives something of a strange pass as though we're all going to be mysteries to each other in some senses. And I, I, mm. I find that to be mm. really kind of an interesting divergence of uh, possibilities of attitudes towards those yeah. specific sets of relationships. I, I think that's probably a, a healthier way to look at it, uh, both, uh, you know, in, in our real lives, but also just in, in trying to think about how do we portray human beings on film. Uh, people are always going to be unknowable to one another, and, and the onlineness can both widen and bridge that gap depending on how we use it, right? If we are not valuing people's privacy, uh, we are either uh, snooping on them online or misrepresenting ourselves to them online. Uh, you know, we're widening that gap uh, through, you know, uh, lies of omission. Uh, when we, uh, you know, try to engage with people on online in ways that are, you know, open and honest, uh, you know, we, we sort of, with, uh, I lost the thread there, but I think you guys know where I was going potentially. <laughs> yeah. Just that this is a double-edged sword and, and there's a certain amount of responsibility um, whether we're telling stories about uh, people's online and real lives or just engaging with our online and real lives, uh, there's a, the responsibility we have to each other uh, to try and respect boundaries and um, you know offer people the chance to, to uh, go over our boundaries if we want them to. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Uh, good. Because I, I, th- I think you're absolutely right, Dustin, to kind of bring up there is a Especially whether you know when you're talking about a parent-child relationship, as as you you were mentioning both with this film and in your own life, trying to unpack how that works, uh, it's definitely a, a weird thing to navigate. I, I can I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, because to an extent, I mean, my son has friends I've never met, right? Yeah, that's just that's the case. Um, and I've met some of his friends, and um, I also he follows me, and I follow him on Snapchat, and. He behaves in ways that I am surprised at sometimes uh, on Snapchat, but I don't say a whole lot about it because I, I'm I'm only there by invitation, right? And uh, in some ways, I am I'm I'm becoming more and more aware of who he is and getting to know him better. Uh, and I'm talking about my 13 year old, not my 17 year old uh, in this case. I'm also my 17 year old, but that's I don't know. I, he he hides better or something. I'm not sure what that is, <laughs> but. Oh well, the that's when you get the secret manual in the mail, like seventeen. That's when they they mail you the how to uh, be a do counterintelligence on your parents, right? No, that's yeah, when I, I got it anyway. Yeah, is it, well, that's probably yeah. We start thinking about it anyhow, right? <laughs> but you know, it, it so I, I have to navigate two, you know, several different tensions of uh, responsibility as a parent to you know be aware and be able to know that okay, if something happened, because I tell you one thing: movies about teenagers and any event about teenagers all always teaches me this: it is a miracle any of us ever survive adolescence, because we are all constantly making poor decisions. That could have gone really wrong, uh, right? Uh, and so I, I'm watching out for that kind of stuff. But at the same time, like I've got to live, let my children live their lives, right, and become who they are, and uh, allow them the privacy to experiment and figure out what that's going to look like. And well, and I think, oh, go ahead, sorry. Then that's that's a real challenge. And I think the movie is also sort of threat. I think that's the sort of heart part of this movie. It Absolutely. is really threading that particular needle. Well, and that was what I was just, I'm, I'm glad I let you finish your, your thought. I thought you were done, but that was what I was jumping in to say was, yeah, that's, I think the strength of searching, right, is showing uh, 
you can do too too little, right? You you can be too on it. You can give people too much space, especially if they're uh, uh, you know people that you share a household with. Uh, th- there comes a point where if all you know is about somebody is the digital crumbs that they're leaving behind, you don't really know them at a certain point. Right. Uh, and, and that, you know, I, I, again, you're right. That, like the, the emotional crux of this movie does a lot of work for it. The, the idea of this shared grief uh, between uh, Dave and Margo, just widening this divide between them and the, the detective work he does kind of allowing him to get to know his daughter again, again, uh, speaks to the, the screenwriting of of the film, uh, speaks to its ability to have a an emotional underpinning to the the central mystery, uh, but it also does you know speak to these very real uh, relationship issues. And again, I think by having you know the the relationship with his brother um, be be a factor in the story, it, it allows us to have this family member uh, that you know gets to know a little bit more about Margot's interior life than, than David's getting to know. Um, and I think that kind of further complicates that, that question of half-lives uh, that we were talking about earlier. Uh, who, yeah. who gets to know, who gets to have access to which parts of our lives and who doesn't? For sure, for sure. And I, you know, we're, we're going to be wrestling with this for, you know, decades probably. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But the uh, um, last thing I want to say about the movie is, though, although, you know, there is some suspicion about social media and having profiles and not be able to find these things and the hiding and the compartmentalization and all that stuff and the potential complications that can come with all of this, this movie is about a murder that gets solved by technology that would, or not an attempted murder, um, that gets solved by technology that in another day and age, just a few decades before, she would have died. You know, and I want to I want to be really clear that this movie is definitely, uh, though, uh, suspicious of social media and of technology and of our digital lives is clearly on the team of this kind of development life, um, just because that is the means by which the murder gets solved. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely uh, it would have been a much easier and potentially less interesting movie to make uh, to make it. Uh, more of a Black Mirror episode, right? To be a little bit more, not that every episode of that show is, uh, you know, a, a Luddite's manifesto, but there, there is a certain way this movie could have gone that could have been very anti-tech. Um, and it doesn't, you know, that, that might come from the filmmaker's background uh, making a, a commercials for Google, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely his bread has been buttered uh, by this industry. It's allowed him to pursue a career as a filmmaker. Um but, you know, the, the, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the story of the film uh, would not have been solved without social media. Is that a thing that happens in real life? I mean, kind of, I guess. Michelle McNamara, right? We were talking about uh, right, sort of crowdsourced yeah. detective stories. Yeah, there there are times in which uh, lights are shined, justice is found. Uh, but just as easily, you know, we have uh, the the kind of counterexample in the film of Spree. And, and in real life, we have these very... Um, man, I really don't even want to talk about it, but uh, people who people get murdered and uh, dipshits put it online. Um, both uh, people who do murders putting them online and people who want to just put those videos online putting them online. There, there right. is a uh, there is a negative edge to that, and I, I, I guess I, I, I'm I'm with you. I'm glad this movie doesn't uh, come down as uh, taking the easy and, and I would say probably the more common movie trope of technology bad be afraid be very afraid right. uh, i'm glad it doesn't go that direction 
But at the same time, the crime couldn't have taken place without uh, the digital world, right? Uh, what's his doodle? Couldn't have catfished or what is his name? Uh, uh, Detective Big Son. Do we know? Bobby? Isaac. No, nope, not matter. Isaac. It really doesn't matter. Yeah. No, it's uh, both in real life uh, and Fish in and movies. Chips. Exactly. We, Fish we do and not chips. celebrate the killers. We don't celebrate the killers. We'll just <laughs> say. Fish or real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I love. Let's go with the screen name. Fish and chips. Yeah. Like. That crime doesn't take place without the ability to hide behind a, a, an avatar, mm-hmm. right? Which I think is, I, I guess, the movie saying just that. There is a double-edged sword to this conundrum of yeah. tech and modern life. Right. But uh, at the same time, you know, it is this white uh, incel boy, right? So it, it's not as though that kind of thing could not have happened without the additional help sure. of that. And one of the things about the digital age, and I think this is really important, you know, as it uh, we are getting more and more publicity and we're having different, different conversations. I was just recently in one of my classes talking about uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, police violence. And I said, you know, one of the reasons we know and we're talking about the usefulness of body cams and that kind of stuff, uh, sort of having an ethical, critical discourse uh, in class. And I said, one of the things that we we've come to realize with uh police violence is the possession of cameras by all the civilians right in the form of cell phones and it's not as though all of a sudden once everyone bought cell phones police started committing more acts of violence against black men it's that we began to gather evidence now and that is powerful and useful and so despite all the other negative ramifications that may come about this um, there's a real numbers 3223, be sure your sins will find you out kind of thing at work here uh, in this uh, digital age in which we're living so much of our lives on screens and the uh, the uh, ubiquity of cameras and surveillance. And uh, mm. certainly there are privacy and other uh, important concerns to, to keep navigating. But one of the things that it is doing, it is um, calling people in power who have abused their power, like our Detective Vic, to account. And um, I, I, in, in a sort of surprising way, it seems like this film is shining a light on that. Uh, it is the use of those technologies that gets her caught. And uh, I'm glad for that. Yeah, Dustin, I, I think you, uh, you, you put it very uh, succinctly. And I think that puts a bow on this conversation. Uh, searching. Don't forget to use the Internet to stop cops from murdering you or allowing your uh, family's murders to go unsolved. Uh, Correct. That's, the movie. that's what the movie's about, right? Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> we solved it. We solved everything. Shall we render a verdict then? Uh, shelf for trash. What do you say for searching Arthur? Uh, I'm going to shelf this one. I, I, I really dig it. I, I, I like what it's doing. I think it's a fine example of what it's doing. Uh, and I just enjoy it. I, I get a good kick out of it. I, I have a good time with it. I sent it as a Patreon reward uh, to a couple of our dear Patreons. Uh, supporters, and so uh, it's one I really respect and admire, and so yeah, it's it's a shelfer for me. Cool. What do you say, Dalton? Uh, stream is what I'll say. I don't think the definitive uh, computer movie exists yet. We're getting there. I think uh, Searching is probably the closest we've gotten. It's got a real damn movie star in it. Uh, it's got real pathos, real stakes. There's just something that, that holds me back at arm's length. I don't know if it's the uh, feeling overwhelmed or not even overwhelmed, but annoyed by the number of red herrings. I don't know if it's uh, the obvious obviousness of having a villain named Rosemary Vick <laughs> uh, be a crooked <laughs> cop. Uh, I, I, look, I, the, there's a lot 
holding me back from giving my full endorsement to this. But if you haven't seen it, it is streaming right now. Um, right? Isn't it streaming, Arthur? No. no. Oh, we did watch. That's right. We uh, we had access to this. I forgot. Well, in that case, uh, I'm going to go ahead and stick to my guns and say wait for it to go streaming. Or, you know, if there's a red box near you, it might be at that. Uh, but you don't need to own it. I wouldn't I wouldn't say shelf it just yet. Uh, it's worth catching up with, to be sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I just don't think we've we've cracked the nut on this this type of movie making just yet. We haven't gotten the the Blair Witch uh, of this genre just just yet. Uh, we're getting there, though, I think. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dalton. Um, I'm going to say shelf, but not because it's a screen capture movie. I'm going to say shelf because it is one of my favorite kinds of genres of movie, which is uh, the labyrinthine investigation film. Uh, this goes all the way back to history of film noir into Psycho, into some of the movies I've named in my syllabus. This movie is just really, really well written as a good mystery twist movie, and I just, I love them. I just, I'm a sucker for them. And so for me, it's a definite shelfer. And so uh, there you go for very, very personal, individual taste reasons. It would go on my shelf. But if that is not if your obsession, then I would probably say it's not a shelfer for uh, just the casual film watcher uh, in that sense. So there you go to listener. Those are our thoughts on searching. Um, Dalton, do you want to tell them how to find social media stuff for us? Since, uh, we, you know, we talked about how it's not all bad. I don't want to No, I don't. It is all, it is all bad and you shouldn't do it. Get off social media. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Dustin's right. There are good things about it. Uh, crime solving, I guess just, you know, respect people's privacy online, including ours. Uh, but, but if you do want to respect our privacy a little less, you can go to <laughs> at underscore trash on Twitter. Uh, that's where everything related to this show uh, happens. Uh, not just this show, uh, but other shows uh, from friends of ours uh, that are either, you know, in this uh, sort of media network type thing or, you know, just we like them. Um, at good underscore trash we're posting links to all kinds of shows this one uh the wheel of randy with dan wade where uh the very funny and very very kind dan wade looks at the the expansive songbook of randy newman has a guest on each week to uh to, to break down uh that that storied storied song singers uh career uh usually a couple of songs at a time his guest will bring one they'll spin a wheel and do one at random it's great it's a ton of fun uh you can also check out the praise down with heath and alex um a, a very it's just a show that never stops being interesting to me uh it doesn't hurt that i'm very good friends with both of the co-hosts but look it, it's just good uh listen to the spiritually curious boys talk about uh uh, adult contemporary christian music um it's it is a podcast uh, like none other I, I can promise you that uh you will you, you will not be disappointed uh in the novelty of the product uh that's at the praise down on twitter if you want to follow them uh it's the praise down with heath and alex on wherever you get podcasts uh if you follow them uh on twitter their pinned tweet it's a link to their discord server which has got me uh them and all, all kinds of other good trash uh adjacent folks that you've either heard of or heard on podcasts hanging out uh, doing stuff being nice to each other it's a good place to be on the internet um for this show specifically you can send your long-form feedback to good trash genrecast at gmail.com uh you could rate review and subscribe you know look we were just talking about clout chasing earlier and uh, one of in my syllabus I i'm not above it give us some stars please uh you don't need to though it's not a big deal uh that's where you can find us. Yeah. Did I forget anything? Um, I don't believe so. No, no, we don't need to plug Patreon this week. We're behind on uh, bonus content. I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, 
I, I wouldn't tell you to go somewhere uh, where we need to catch up on the thing we're promising you. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, I, I believe now all that's left is for Arthur to tell us what we need to watch between now and next time we talk. Well, gentlemen, next week we're watching a film from, let me find my notes, sorry, uh, 1979 made on a budget of $4 million, which is actually a good chunk of change in 1979. Yes. Uh, and budget. is considered one of the most cutting edge films of its era. Next week, we celebrate the holiday season with the life of Brian. Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, you'll always find me uh, out here looking on the bright side of life, folks. <laughs> uh, no one expects a Spanish Inquisition. Now, I can't wait, dear listener. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.